Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the vote. On this day 100 years ago, Congress passed the 19th Amendment, guaranteeing women the right to vote. We'll talk with Carol Anderson, historian and author of One Person, No Vote, about the long struggle of black women and other people of color to get and keep the right to vote. We'll also get her thoughts on the president's attacks on mail-in balloting and fears that he's undermining the U.S. Postal Service to disenfranchise voters. Join us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. There's perhaps no clearer indication of the power of the right to vote than in the effort to deny it to people. The 19th Amendment, passed on this day 100 years ago, marked the beginning of another struggle to freely exercise that new constitutionally enshrined right to vote, especially for black women and other women of color. And it's a struggle felt broadly that continues to this day, according to our guest, Carol Anderson, with gerrymandering, the closure of polling places, the purging of voter rolls, and efforts to sow doubt in the integrity of ballots. Anderson is a historian and chair of African American Studies at Emory University. Her most recent book is One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. Carol Anderson, welcome to Forum. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. First, I have to ask, what does this 100-year anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment mean to you? It means that it is just another step on the way to freedom, but that it's very clear that Black women did not have the right to vote with the 19th Amendment. Um, And so it was... um, And that was a, a deliberate choice by the the white suffragist so um it's it's bittersweet it's a step on the way 
um, but it's not all the way. Yeah, what is less known or talked about in terms of the role race played in this fight for women's voting rights? Yes, and so it's it's that um, we have to go back to the abolitionist days where you had uh, white women and and black people fighting to end slavery, um, and it was seen as this kind of common goal, common humanity. But then, when black men got the right to vote in 1867 with the Reconstruction Act, and then with the 15th Amendment, um, uh, white women were angry. And you saw the fissure because they could not believe that somebody black would get, and I do mean that with that, you know, that one syllable word with five syllables, um, (laughs) would get the right to vote before them. Um, and we saw that black women continue to agitate for the right to vote, but the white leaders like Alice Paul and Carrie Catt um, and Susan B. Anthony were just absolutely opposed to it um, and made that clear toward the, um, toward the as, as we're getting closer to the ratification, the passage of the 19th Amendment, where... Um, Carrie Cat said, look, uh, we, we know we don't want Negro men. How do I put this? Is, is that if white women get the right to vote, is that there will then be more white men and white women together, and that will strengthen white supremacy, not weaken it. So that kind of vision um, becomes part of the barriers Um, obstacles that Black women um, were having to fight against and through in order to be able to exercise their right to vote. Can you talk about what happened in Mississippi, uh, which you have often described as sort of creating the blueprint for voter suppression and getting around the 15th Amendment that guaranteed the right to vote to Black men? Absolutely. Um, in Mississippi, what had happened was prior to, we're in the, the, the U.S. was in the middle of a major economic downturn and poor folk were really feeling it. And so poor white men and poor black men were joining together politically to find politicians and policymakers who understood the plight of the poor, of the working poor. In Mississippi, the white politicians looked up and went, oh, it was almost like a Scooby-Doo moment. (laughs) Oh, we got to stop this. And so what they did was to talk about cleaning up the ballot box, ending corruption in our elections, and to create a thing called the Mississippi Plan. It was the Mississippi Plan of 1890. And what they did was to say, how do we write a law saying we don't want Black people to vote? without writing a law saying, we don't want black people to vote. And what they did was to use the societally imposed conditions on African-Americans and make those conditions the access to the ballot box. And so you had a series of policies. So the thing was, if one doesn't get them, the other one will. If that one doesn't get them, the other one will. If that one doesn't get them, the other one will. And those conditions dealt with like issues of, of wealth. So with the poll tax, the poll tax will sound reasonable. Democracy is expensive. 
we have all of these elections and we have to finance it somehow. So we think that if you really believed in democracy, you would be willing to pay a small fee. That, that language and that structure, they do two things. One is it puts the onus of the right to vote on the individual instead of on the state. And two, it really goes after the fact that African-Americans have had hundreds of years of unpaid labor, followed by the Black Codes after the Civil War, which was slavery by another name, followed by sharecropping. So wealth and access to wealth, access to income was, was just doubly difficult. But it sounded reasonable. But it was so unreasonable because it amounted to uh, the farm, a Mississippi farm family's annual income of about two to 6% of their annual income to pay the poll tax to be able to vote. And the poll tax was cumulative. So if you didn't pay it the first year, you couldn't pay it the first year. And you couldn't pay it the fifth year. And you couldn't pay it the 10th year. You couldn't pay it the 20th year. By the time you could pay it, you owed all of those years of back poll taxes before you could cast a ballot. Wow. And because the language was written race neutral, because it didn't say we don't want black people to vote, the US Supreme Court said, ah, this doesn't violate the 15th Amendment. And you had the same thing with the literacy test. You systematically deny education, and then you require people to read the Constitution and interpret it in order to be able to vote. Again, the US Supreme Court said, since everybody has to read it, it doesn't violate the 15th. There were other components in the Mississippi Plan of 1890, but by the time we get to 1940, only 3% of age eligible black adults were registered to vote in the South. So a, a, a region of the nation where over 70% of African-Americans live and only 3% are registered to vote. That is the power of the Mississippi plan. And how did it become, as you say, a blueprint for, for moving forward and for allowing voter suppression efforts to evolve? And that was because it was so, I call it legislative evil genius, um, because it, it was written so race neutrally that the U.S. Supreme Court says looks fine to us. The other states saw that as an incredible opportunity to remove black voters from the electorate. And so Louisiana hopped on it, South Carolina hopped on it, Georgia, Alabama, Texas. I mean, so the Mississippi plan spread throughout the, the states of the old Confederacy. And that is why when we look up, we see uh, a Southern region where in some um, elections, because the electorate has been so, so gnarled, so cauterized, that in some elections, you only have about a five to 10% voter turnout rate. And that not only affects their state and local elections, but it affects 
um, who's being sent to Congress and therefore who is having a say in federal law that affects all of us. So the power of the Mississippi plan, mm. the fact that you have the U.S. Supreme Court say it doesn't violate the, the 15th Amendment, gave sanction to the other states to implement um, these laws, these policies as a way to rid the electorate of African-Americans, of frankly, American citizens. And of course, the 19th Amendment did not do away with those state laws. What role did the Voting Rights Act of 1965 play? Oh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was landmark legislation. Um, what it did, it was the result of what we see um, as the cataclysm on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1965, where you had um, Congressman John Lewis and Hosea Williams at the front of its nonviolent protest for voting rights. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 had what it called pre-clearance. And so it had standards. It looked at uh, if you had fewer than 50% of your age eligible adults registered to vote and you used one of these devices from the Mississippi plan, that was the, the tripwire for uh, what's called preclearance, where those states and those jurisdictions could not implement a voting law until it had been approved by the U.S. Department of Justice first. So what that did, or by the federal courts in D.C., what that did was it stopped these laws from being implemented and elections being held with a, a disfranchised, you know, by disfranchising large portions of your population. And that it, it therefore allowed um, these politicians to continue to, to put folks in, in power who were going to disfranchise. The Voting Rights Act stopped that. Yes, an incredible increase in the number and percentage of people who voted within the five years of passage of that Voting Rights Act. was It was very dramatic. We're talking with Carol Anderson about the history of voting rights in America and why the fight for those rights continues today. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Today is the 100-year anniversary of women's suffrage and a reminder to value our voting rights. And we want to hear from you. What value do you place on your vote? And has it changed for you recently? In what way? Are you a longtime voter, a first-time voter this election? How are you feeling about voting in this election? Are you planning not to vote? Or do you think your vote doesn't matter? We're talking with Carol Anderson, professor and chair of African-American studies at Emory University, author of One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is destroying our democracy. She's also featured in the upcoming documentary, All In, The Fight for Democracy. And so in, you know, 1975 and beyond, the Voting Rights Act is continually renewed, even expanded. My understanding is that in 1975, it was expanded to try to ensure that Asian Americans and Latinx people could vote, especially with um, voting in their language. 
What happens uh, to the Voting Rights Act? And if you want to talk about uh, uh, Shelby v. Holder as well and the impact it had. Yeah, that, that's where we really have to go to understand why we are where we are right now. Um, and so the Voting Rights Act, as you noted, had consistently been um, reauthorized. And in 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Shelby County v. Holder that the Voting Rights Act was, um, that the Section 4, that pre-clearance provision was unconstitutional because the Voting Rights Act was really, they saw it as a, a relic of the past. They said that in a 5-4 decision penned by Chief Justice John Roberts, that racism was no longer the force in American society that it had been. Um, and so the, the need for the Voting Rights Act was really not clear. Um, these were old standards and these were, uh, and it picked on the South and it felt calcified. And, and so they gutted it. They gutted the preclearance provision. What that meant then was that two hours after the Shelby County v. Holder decision, Texas implemented its voter ID law a voter ID law that in subsequent litigation, uh, the courts had found to be racially discriminatory and at some point noted to have a racially discriminatory intent, not just impact. Um, North Carolina wasn't far behind, Alabama wasn't far behind. And so you see this, this wave of new laws coming up, again, like the Mississippi plan under the guise of protecting democracy. Um, but just like the Mississippi plan, it is a lie and it is designed to figure out how to stop key segments of the voting population from having a voice in the government, from, from being able to be taxed without, rep uh, without representation. Um, you see it in poll closures. So we've had since that time um, almost 1,700 polling places closed. The majority, the vast majority of those in those pre-clearance states. What that means, for instance, is that we know that for every 10th of a mile that a polling place is moved from the black community, black voter turnout goes down by 0.5%, up to four miles. So if you can move a polling place always under the guise of being fiscally responsible. You can move it far enough away. Because of transportation issues, you can force a, a decrease in Black voter turnout. In Georgia alone, we've had over 212 polling places closed, 75% of those in minority and poor communities. That's the impact of, of Shelby County v. Holder and the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. Well, this listener asks, can you talk about how the Mississippi plan and other policies also hurt poor white voters and others, how these strategies end up hurting the entire electorate? Absolutely. Um, it's, it became very clear that, I mean, this is why you see this, this, this voter turnout dropping from uh, in the 70s, the high 70% range. Uh, coming out of Reconstruction up until 1890 and going down to a total of in the single digits. 
because you have these things where there were poor whites that they didn't want to vote. They created an escape clause for poor whites that they liked, uh, which was the grandfather clause that said, if your grandfather could vote in uh, the election before 1867, then you too could vote, even if you couldn't do the poll tax or even if you couldn't do the literacy test because overwhelmingly African-Americans couldn't vote before 1867. But when you send a signal that you don't want people to vote and you make it very clear and you create hurdles, it begins to make it very difficult to have that kind of engaged uh, electorate to, mm. to have that kind of, of sense of a full, vibrant democracy. Voter suppression destroys democracy. Um, it made it, it destroyed it in the South after the Mississippi plan, and it's doing its darndest right now after Shelby County v. Holder. It is interesting to hear you say that because besides just the logistical or other policy ways of trying to suppress the vote, it sounds like you're saying that just as or very powerful is the psychological impact that it can have? Absolutely. Um, we know that, for instance, um, in the long lines, you know, we, we see these long lines to vote. And for the longest time, um, media was like, wow, look at the enthusiasm for the vote. But in fact, what that was, were these long lines were happening in Black and Latino communities. And and it was because there were fewer working machines, fewer poll workers, and it was a way to starve those communities of the elector, election machinery that they needed in order to be able to vote quickly. The, the word would then get around, not just in that voter who stood in line for five hours, seven hours, but in their families and in their communities, that voting is really difficult. When you are, uh, when you punch a clock and you have to spend seven hours of that working day on that Tuesday in line to vote, you have missed an entire day's worth of pay. It sends out the signal to that voting is too hard. We also know that uh, we have states that make it very difficult to register to vote. Because if you don't have a, 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 a clear, seamless registration process, how you do it, particularly for, for people who are very busy and who are dealing with life and survival and everything, getting the kids to here and getting the kids to there, then when you make that very difficult, it becomes this kind of it's too much. Hmm. It's just too much. So there is a psychological component to voter suppression. It's the same way that extreme partisan gerrymandering. And so it doesn't sound, it sounds weird that gerrymandering would have an effect on a statewide or a national election. But what it does is by eliminating competitive districts, people believe that their votes don't matter because so-and-so is going to get elected anyway. And so if that person in your district is going to get elected anyway, then 
than going out to vote and standing in line for seven hours. I mean, you start adding it up, adding it up, adding it up, and psychologically, you distance yourself. Well, let me go to caller Nancy in Berkeley. Hi, Nancy, join us. Hi, Nancy, are you there? I can yeah. hear you now. Go right ahead. Hi. Hi. I, I thought it was going to take longer. Yeah. Um, a couple things I wanted to say is, um, first of all, I think voter suppression is the most important thing that we can talk about at this time before the election. And that um, I was very interested in what the um, um, woman had to say about black women uh, being um exact um not being um um wanting to vote or, or being repressed from voting with the women's uh, movement that's something that um you never hear hello uh, nancy thanks so we touched on this a little bit but uh dr anderson if there's more you want to say about that yeah absolutely and so um it was it was part of the movement. It was like Ida B. Wells, who um, we know her from her anti-lynching campaign, but she also had a voting rights campaign for women. And when she tried to join her group of Black women to a suffrage march, they were like, you need to go in the back. You know, so they wanted to have a segregated march. And she was like, no. And as they started marching, she brought her black suffragists right up there with them. And, and, and she said, because this is for the whole race. And actually it was for all of humanity. Uh, when you separate out like that, it makes it really easy to craft policies and frameworks that make it um, very difficult to, 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 to have the kind of society where we all can live. So by the time we get into the 60s, um, there's a woman in Mississippi named Fannie Lou Hamer. And she was a sharecropper. And she went to try to register to vote. And she was beaten senseless for trying to register to vote in 1960. Uh, so we are in the middle of the Cold War. We are where... Uh, John Kennedy is now president, and she was kicked off of the land, and she had gone into the hospital for a tonsillectomy, and when she came out, she found out that they had actually sterilized her. That was her punishment for daring to try to register to vote. Wow. Even with all that history and suppression, today, Black women are one of the most active voting blocks. I mean, is it in part because of? Um, what do you think explains that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the activism of Black women has a long, long, powerful history. Uh, lifting as we climb. We, in, we specialize in the wholly impossible. Um, and it is, a, it is a broader vision. It is a vision of, of seeing that policies that undermine black women, undermine white women too, undermine 
indigenous women, undermine Hispanic women. And so we see this. Um, so this advocacy for education, this advocacy for access to quality healthcare, this advocacy for a clean environment, um, so clean water, clean air, that affects everyone. And that force power, that moral power, that moral force to lead it into a political force um, has been a driving feature of, of Black women's activism for a long centuries. <laughs> so I want to ask you about what's happening with the Postal Service. It's Lord. being described as <laughs> as a blatant attempt to suppress the vote to tip the election results in favor of the president. Do you see this as another evolution of a voter suppression strategy? Absolutely. And the reason why is because we are in the middle of a pandemic, a lethal pandemic that disproportionately kills and affects African-Americans and Hispanics. And so we are asking people to choose between their right to vote, because we know this is an airborne virus, their right to vote and their right to health, their right to safety. We're asking them to choose. It's Jim Crow 2.0. You can either vote, but if you vote, you risk your life. You know, you think about Fannie Lou Hamer. You can either try to vote or you can stay safe. That's what we're doing again. And so mail-in ballots become the way to square that circle where you can exercise your right to vote and you can do so safely. When Trump recognized this, and he also recognizes how deeply unpopular he is, and that a, a, a massive increase in mail-in ballots may affect his reelection. His response was, and I mean, and he has said this out loud, well, I, I don't want all of those mail-in ballots, so we got to slow them down. And so when you see the dismantling of equipment, when you see the order to no more overtime, when you see the order to just leave the mail there and don't get out all of the mail in one day, all of that is designed to clog up, to slow down the, the, the postal system and its ability to get the, the increase in mail-in ballots uh, to, uh, to American voters and from those voters to the, uh, the Board of Elections. But it's more than that too. Just like with long lines, just like with gerrymandering, just like with difficult voter registration, it's also designed to create a psychological effect to make you question the ability and the credibility of mail-in ballots. Will my vote even be counted? Because once you begin to sow that seed of doubt into the electorate, half the job is already done. So this is absolutely pernicious and it is as pernicious as a poll tax, it is as pernicious as a literacy test. 
Um, and it is as pernicious as moving polling places um, because in so many ways, that is exactly what this is. It's now requiring people to, to think through, how do I vote in person in the middle of a pandemic that more than 5 million people have contracted and over 170,000 have died? Wow. We're talking with Carol Anderson, professor and chair of African-American studies at Emory University, author of One Person, No Vote, How White, How White, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. She's also featured in the upcoming documentary, All in the Fight for Democracy. She's also author of the book, White Rage. We're talking about the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote and the state of voting rights today. And we want to hear from you. What's the first election you ever voted in or the most memorable vote you've ever cast? Are you a longtime voter? Are you planning not to vote this time? How are you feeling about voting in this year's election? And what does the right to vote mean to you? And of course, we'd love to hear from our women listeners on this 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment as well. Barbara writes, during the discussion, I keep thinking about Stacey Abrams, the man who stole the election from her campus, costing hundreds of unnecessary deaths in Georgia right now. This listener writes, I'm seeing lots of social media chatter from women of color about how today is when white women got the right to vote. Do you think it's helpful to make that distinction? How do you respond to that? I'd love to get your thoughts on that, Carol Anderson, right after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. We're looking at the power of the vote as measured by the efforts to exclude it from people. We're talking with Carol Anderson, author of the book, One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. She's professor and chair of African-American studies at Emory University and also a historian. And just before the break, Dr. Anderson, we got this comment. It came in saying, I'm seeing lots of social media chatter from women of color about how today is when white women got the right to vote. Do you think it's helpful to make that distinction? I'm was the campaign chair. Oh, Carol Anderson, are you there? Yes, I am. I'm, yes, I am. Sorry. Um, yeah, I, I believe that it is absolutely important to to make that that clear because when we flatten the the language about women getting the right to vote, then all of a sudden, uh, Amelia, Mrs. Amelia Boynton, doesn't make a lot of sense. Who headed up the uh, the league in Selma? to try to get the right to vote, um, where in Dallas County, only 0.7% of African-Americans were registered to vote. Um, it doesn't make, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer doesn't make sense. Uh, you need a Blackwell out of Mississippi, doesn't make sense. Uh, Rosa Parks, doesn't make sense. Uh, Dorothy Cotton, doesn't make sense. Septima Clark doesn't make sense. So all of these women who are fighting in the 40s, 50s, and 60s for the right to vote, to exercise that right to vote, none of that history would make sense if we continue to think that in with the 19th Amendment, women 
were recognized for their right to vote mm -hmm. because I'm not going to say given. I, I've got this thing about given. Um, you can't give somebody their rights. All you can do is take them away. Mm. Well, let me go to Deborah in Novato. Hi, Deborah. Hi. I'm, I'm calling to express the idea that um, my grandfather lived in uh, Greenwood, Mississippi, and my great uncle was Mose Wright. And my, oh! grandmother, my grandmother told me that uh, when my grandfather, Will Wright, had the poll tax, she told him, even if you pay, they still won't give you the right to vote. And when I had my right to vote in 1972, that's when I started voting, and the power of the vote, I, I thoroughly understand it from being in Mississippi, uh, knowing about Fannie Lou Hammer and that whole region of the Mississippi Delta and the suppression of the vote, even to this very day. It, it, as a woman, I, I know that as a woman, that is the power that a woman, that's our voice. That is our voice. That's clearly our voice to vote. And I work the polls. And at this time, I, I, I'm like 67 years, 66 years old. But if I have to stand and I have to deal with COVID and what it goes with that, I'm, I'm taking that step. I'm going to take that risk for my vote because the future generations, I can't even fathom what it will be for my great nieces and my nephews. I don't even mm. want to think about that. Well, Jabar, that's such a great story, and it got quite a reaction from you, Carol Anderson. Do you want to yes. respond? Mose Wright was Emmett Till's uncle. Emmett Till was the 14-year-old boy who was dragged out of Mose Wright's home and tortured and killed, um, horribly disfigured. Um, and it was his open casket where his mother said, I want you to see what they did to my boy. That really becomes what, what becomes the traditional launch of the civil rights movement. And J.W. Milam, the man, one of the men who killed Emmett Till, he gave an interview where he said, you know, because the Brown decision had just happened. He's like, you know, we gotta do this because they're gonna want the right to vote. And then if they vote, they're going to vote and they're going to be coming into our schools. So we have to do this, which means we have to kill a 14-year-old boy to send the signal that Black people have no rights that a white Mississippian is dare to, dares to respect. So that was my... And when I think about uh, the Voting Rights Act, Prior to 1965, in the early 1960s, uh, about 5% of, of Black Mississippians, age-eligible Black Mississippians, were registered to vote. Only 5%. Two years after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, it was almost 60%. Wow. That is legislation with power. Well, Deborah, thank you again. And, and let me go next to Leo in San Jose. Hi, Leo. Hey, hey, I just wanted to say that the first time I got to vote was in 2012, uh, after I became a naturalized U.S. citizen. And it meant a lot to vote for somebody that was, you know, at least trying to do the best that they could in office. And I intend to vote again this year. And I intend to actually go to the poll and risk my life to do so because 
if I don't, I'll feel a bit guilty that I didn't do anything about it um, as far as wanting to do it because my life will actually literally depend on, on a better outcome to this election. So I will risk if I need to, because if I don't, I'll feel bad about not participating in it. Leo, thank you. And it's making me think, Carol Anderson, about, so, I mean, what do we do about these efforts, for example, right? What would you recommend that people do this election to make sure that they are not victims of voter suppression, if possible? There are several things and several organizations. Um, One of the things you can do is to make sure you're registered to vote Um, and check your Secretary of State's, check your registration online at the Secretary of State's website. Um, order your absentee ballot early. Find out where your drop boxes are so that if the postal service is kneecapped, that you can still get your absentee ballot to the election officials when you vote by knowing where your drop box is. Stay on top of your elected officials knowing letting them know how much you care and how important it is to you that we have free and fair elections. Support organizations that are dragging these voter suppressors into court. It's really, huh? Yeah, sorry, forgive me. I was just going to say it's really hard to measure, or maybe it isn't, how how effective voter suppression efforts are. I mean, there was a 7% drop in Black voter turnout in 2016. This was the first election without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. A lot of that was attributed to a lack of enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton. But do you think that explains it? No. <laughs> I really don't. And I think that it becomes, it's part of the misogyny that courses through American society. So it becomes really easy to say, well, you know, Black folks just weren't filling Hillary. She got three, almost three million more votes than Trump. Um, That 7% drop was a targeted hit. Um, And a lot of it was due to this was the first election without the protections of the Voting Rights Act. So to compare Hillary's outcome in terms of black support with say Obama's um, is, is just so fundamentally wrong on so many different levels. Um, and I would say as well that for instance, let's look at Wisconsin. Um, Scholars did a study after the 2016 election because there was a 60,000 vote drop-off in Wisconsin from 2012 to 2016. Wisconsin had implemented a voter ID law and then Governor Scott Walker had um, shut down Department of Motor Vehicles in uh, key areas in Milwaukee, moved moved those uh, uh, DMVs, uh, restricted their hours while increasing the numbers in conservative and rural counties. The the study shows that 8% of whites did not vote in Wisconsin because of the voter ID law. 27% of African-Americans did not vote because of the voter ID law. Trump won Wisconsin 
by a little over 22,000 votes. Voter suppression has an impact, a lethal, deadly impact on our democracy. Well, Angela writes, I have a hard time with the celebration today of getting the vote, but I did some research in the context of the time African-American women did have allies in the movement, but the Southern contingent and others threatened the success of it and a political choice to leave black women behind was made. We can't change that. It's what we do today that matters. If we can't stand together as women, no matter our color, then what our foremothers did was in vain. Let me go to Jay in San Jose. Hi, Jay. Join us. Yeah, I... um I have been a poll worker or a precinct inspector or a vote center lead for the last six elections. And this last primary election in California, I had the opportunity to work in my county for the first time under the new rules that, are, that come with the Voter Choice Act. And what this did was it did reduce the number of polling places from over 800 to 111. But at the same time, it increased the hours of those vote centers. Uh, every one of them was open for four days. So they were open on the weekend. You could vote on, Friday, on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, or Tuesday. And every registered voter received a mail-in ballot. I'm just wondering if there's been any study about the Voters' Choice Act, and it, did that have any effect on enabling people to vote that hadn't been or suppressing them? I was interested in that, that statistic that, that it says that reducing the number of polling places suppresses a part of the vote. But I'm wondering if these other actions of giving everyone a mail-in ballot and having the vote centers open for multiple days uh, has been seen, has there been any, any study about that effect? Jay, thanks. And uh, Carol Anderson, are you familiar with the Voters' Choice Act in California and what Jay is no, talking I'm about? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Um, but what I can speak to um, is that he noted that uh, if the, voter, the, the voting centers weren't open just on that Tuesday, but that there were multiple days when they were open. What we know is that across the nation, there are states that do early voting. And that's that same kind of concept, recognizing that not everybody can get off on a Tuesday to go vote. And in those states where they had done early voting, and again, this is after the gutting of the Voting Rights Act with Shelby County v. Holder, states like North Carolina and Florida looked at the data about when African-Americans voted early, saw that African-Americans voted early disproportionate to, to their numbers in the electorate, mm -hmm. that because of the kind of economic disparities that means that you African-Americans generally do punch a clock, that being able to vote on a Saturday mattered, being able to vote on a Sunday really provided access to the ballot box. So those states cut those early voting days where African-Americans voted early. One of the things that we noted in North Carolina was that the Republicans, um, who cut those early voting hours, they rejoiced. They said, wow, we're looking at these early votings and black voter turnout has gone down by 8.5% in early voting. So we've got that kind of data about what restricting access to the ballot box does. I would love to see a study about what happened in California. 
Well, let me go next to Bonnie in Berkeley. Hi, Bonnie. Hi. Hi. You're on. Um, well, thank you for all of your incredible work. I love the historical component of it. Um, I was wondering if you think that our electoral college has outlived its useful life and is now part of voter suppression. And I would also just say that my most memorable vote was when I went to the polls after President Carter had already conceded because I live in California and I voted because I needed to vote. Well, Bonnie, thanks for sharing that. Electoral College, Dr. Anderson. Uh, I think the Electoral College is... Um, has outlived its usefulness. We have seen, um, you know, it was put in place as a way to uh, give some kind of solace uh, to smaller states um, because there was a fear that big old New York would just dominate things. Um, and what we're seeing, we, we've had uh, W won the electoral college, but not the popular vote. Trump won the electoral college and not the popular vote. And it does violence to our, our sense of one person, one vote in a democracy. Um, I know that there is an initiative that deals with the national popular vote so that the electors go with where the uh, popular vote is. And that initiative is, is a couple of states short or so of being able to be put in action. And, and so this is why you see this kind of, of, of discussion about the swing states uh, and all this attention on the swing states. Um, and because it's about the electoral college and not the popular vote. And as I said, that really does violence to the, the notion of, of democracy. Well, Jean writes, part of the value of voting is getting informed about various federal, state, and local issues in advance and getting together with others to talk and watch the debates. It's part of how we recognize ourselves and others as citizens. I was living in Asheville. Paul writes, I was living in Asheville, North Carolina in 2012 and participated in a get-out-the-vote effort to take advantage of early voting. When I went door-to-door -door in public housing, older people of color who had vivid memories of having their right to vote denied were anxious to have white people accompany them to the polls. Um, do you have a mem most memorable vote, Carol Anderson? Um, you know, it all kind of blurs for me. Um. <laughs> no problem. Let me it see if really I can squeeze. Yeah, let me see if I can squeeze Brooke in right now. Brooke in San Francisco, join us. Hi, thank you. I just wanted to preface this by saying that I don't want to trivialize anybody's experience when they go to the voting booth. Uh, but I grew up poor in Sacramento, and I just wanted to touch upon the, the fact that uh, voting wasn't really something that we did. And I think that poverty um, kind of has an effect on whether you think that your vote's going to count and whether you, know, you, you are upwardly mobile, I guess I would say, to go and vote. Poverty, um, Carol Anderson. We just have 30 seconds or so, but an interesting point. Thanks, Brooke. Yes, and one of the studies, there are studies that show that if you have a history of voting, it becomes a history of voting. If you have a history of not voting in your family, it becomes a history of not voting. Um, and so what we have to do is to mobilize all American citizens to vote um, and to make it accessible. 
Well, Mari writes, I'm an attorney in the East Bay and I've worked the polls many times. I encourage anyone who values the right to vote to sign up now with their county election department to work at the polls. It is critical that we have high functioning poll workers and there are never enough. Carol Anderson, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Carol Anderson, professor and chair of African-American studies at Emory University, author of One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. She's also in the upcoming documentary, All In, The Fight for Democracy. Thanks so much to our listeners for their questions and comments. Ariana Prail produced this segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.